word peace mean? Happiness. Happiness. Can you tell me about a time in your life where you experienced happiness or peace? It's very short. Do it. When me, my sister, and brother got along. People aren't getting angry at everybody and um, they aren't mad. Yeah, that is a great answer. Like a piece of pie or pizza. Can you give me an example of a time where things weren't so peaceful? Um, when we had like 40 kids at our house, I don't do well with people, and so that gets really crazy when there are too many people. When I say the word peace, what do you think of? Peace. Piece of pie. Piece of pie? That sounds pretty good right now. You want a piece of pie? I don't have any pie, I'm sorry. So, when everything's quiet and then, um, and you're reading a book, that's probably, would be f peaceful for you? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm gonna relate this back to last night. Um, my brothers, they were just having trouble with my parents because they were just tired and fed up with going to school. And so I stepped in and said to my second youngest brother and said to him, um, Luke, how about you put some peace in your life with Philip and just calm down? Did you think of anything for peace? What do you think peace means? Uh, like the same as paradise? Sure. Yeah. What is paradise going to be like, Owen? Um, I don't know, like really beautiful? Yeah. Think they'll have bacon in paradise? Um, no. You don't think they'll have bacon? Mm. Paradise sounds kind of lame. <laughs> said that. <laughs> you really did say that, Steve. Yeah, he, he said it out loud. He did, and that was Nick, our middle school pastor, so you know who we trust your kids with, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> so if you need a theology of paradise, find somebody who's not Nick. Is that yeah, what you're saying? Yeah, that's okay. right. And obviously there is no bacon in there if you're of Jewish origin. Sorry for that. <clears throat> that's why I'm a Gentile, Craig. Absolutely, yeah. it's right, yeah. Hey, we're so gr grateful to all of you who joined us today. This whole theme of peace is something that we're going to be covering in detail as we kind of enter into this new series called All Due Respect. And for those of you who are participating with us online, we want to say thank you for giving uh, just your time and your energy to be with us here this morning. Over the last two weeks, uh, we've kind of been consumed and captivated with stories of hurricanes, both Harvey and Irma. They've dominated the news cycles in our airwaves. And many of us, especially those of us uh, like Craig and I who have friends and family in the Tampa area, were watching the news last week with a lot of, a lot of concern, with, with bated breath. And during that time, I was looking at my news feed, and I read a story of the actress Kristen Bell, who is helping friends in Florida out in the face of the storm. And here's what she said in an Instagram post. She said, every person I passed today was assisting someone else. It was beautiful to see, sad that a hurricane has to bring out the best in everyone, but happy that the community will be holding hands through this. The one line in her statement that grabbed me was this, sad that a hurricane has to bring out the best in everyone. She's right though, isn't she? Like when our nation faces a crisis, whether it was September 11th, which we commemorated this last week, or whether it was Harvey in Houston or Irma in Florida, we show this incredible capacity for resolve and compassion and generosity, self-sacrifice and unity. 
We rally our energy and resources to serve those in crisis and seek to rebuild in the face of devastation. In the Jewish tradition, this is called tikkun olam, which could be translated roughly to heal the earth. This idea is rooted in the Hebrew understanding of the word shalom, which often gets translated in English as peace. But Craig has been reminding me that shalom is not just the absence of conflict. It is the presence of the rule and reign of God. It's the manifestation of God's healing, hope, and restoration. Now, unfortunately, there's a flip side, a shadowed side to Chris and Bell's observation. And that's this, that if a hurricane brings out the best, then in theory, a return to normalcy means that our nation will likely revert to petty arguments, political rhetoric, and the personal hostility we experienced before. And when we do, shalom, that understanding of God's wholeness, starts to break down. And we believe that a nation unifying different people from different states assumes conflict without having to make it a war. That's why we call it these United States. And citizens here, like citizens of heaven, appreciate that the road to unity leads to the valley of hostility. Yet in the face of hostility, unity requires civility. And shalom, that sense of understanding and peace, breaks down when we judge, criticize, and belittle those who don't see the world the way that we do. Shalom breaks down when we demean neighbors and strangers over arguments about party lines, race, sexual behavior, gender identity, immigration, and the economy. Make no mistake, these are all important conversations to have. And we here at Central believe that God has something to say about every single one of those topics. That said, the goal of this series, which we're calling All Due Respect, is to ask this question. How do we engage other people when their views clash with ours? A few weeks ago, I had some low-level drama on social media with an acquaintance of mine. Uh, two different instances. One, somebody challenged an organization that I hold dear on their public page. And then another instance, uh, somebody was calling me out on my personal page because of certain theological beliefs that I hold dear. And in that moment, I was faced with one of two temptations. One is, do I respond and risk making the whole thing worse, or do I ignore it and hope that it goes away? You ever had that? Like sometimes I see something on social media, I'm like, if I let this ride, like it'll just resolve itself. And then there are other parts where I'm tempted to say no. Like if this person is allowed to just kind of broadcast their buffoonery to the digital universe unchecked, who knows what the world will come to? Like when I was in high school, I was not an athlete, but I was in debate, and we were taught not just to win an argument, but make sure you shamed your opponent in the winning. <laughs> so the question that we have to ask ourselves is this, how do we respond? And I wrestle with this, because we as Christians are called to be the salt of the earth, but all too often we're guilty of being gas on the fire. A great passage in Proverbs offers some insight on this issue. We find it in chapter 26, verse 4 and 5. It says, do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you yourself will be just like him. So that's the argument that says, let it ride. The very next verse says, answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. So you're like, well, what is it? Do I answer the fool or not answer the fool? It seems like these are our only two options. Either we abdicate. We withdraw and stick our heads in the sand, or we escalate. We come out swinging with a vengeance. We take a scorched earth approach with our opponents, throwing everything we have and more at them. And more often than not, the evangelical church in America has opted for the latter approach. Our concern is that in so doing, maybe we're not representing the heart of God the way we say we want to. 
So let me say it again. If we are to be the salt of the earth, we shouldn't be gas on the fire. Is there another option? Is there a better way to do this? Yeah, we believe that there is. We passionately believe that as Christians, we are called to engage. We're not called to be silent, to ignore it, and we're not called to argument. Engagement can exist without making a war out of difference. To do this best, we believe that we should look no further than the person of Jesus himself. The Bible says in Galatians that when the time had fully come, in other words, when the right time had come, that's what it means, that God sent his son. And it just so happens that God sent his son at the right time, and that right time was a very divided nation. There were people in that nation who essentially felt that liberation from Rome was exactly what God wanted, and when the Messiah would come, that's what he would lead them into, liberation from Rome. There were other people who were in that nation who believed at that point in time that Rome was exactly what God wanted, and pandering to Rome was the best thing for the nation. And Jesus was thrust into this debate, into this culture war. But on nine occasions in the New Testament, in the Gospels, we read of Jesus being given an either-or choice. Usually it went either Rome or Jerusalem. And what we discover in Jesus' response is that he doesn't bury his head in the sand. He doesn't go silent, but he actually kind of puts his head out of the window to be shot at. He, He makes statements, but those statements actually reveal that his kingdom was not going to, in a sense, deal with Rome or Jerusalem. His kingdom was to be the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom isn't of Rome. My kingdom isn't even of Jerusalem. My kingdom is the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And this, Jesus said, is how you enter it. Repent and believe the good news. And so nine times Jesus is put on the spot. And on nine times, he does something to focus our attention on what is truly important. And if Christians today want to avoid the either-or of the battle for ideas gripping our nation, then what we should do is look no further than the way that Jesus deals with this. We want to start off our our series by pointing to one passage, Matthew Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 through 22. And if you were here at, at the start and picked up a Bible from the rack, you can turn there to page 990. And this is one of those either or clashes. And it's a beautiful one because it points us to the heart of the issue. How do we deal with the battle with ideas? How do we deal with people who think differently to us? We're a nation of United States, and as Steve has said, the the whole idea, the whole premise of the, the difference in states is that we can be different without going to war over it. So how do we do this? And Jesus' answer here is find Peace. Find peace. Have a look at this text with me. Matthew 22 from verse 15 through verse 22. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. We'll look at those in just a second. 
Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to what they are. In other words, Jesus wasn't codependent. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Either taxes or not. But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Now, this is where it gets interesting. Show me the coin used for paying the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he asked them two questions. Whose image is on the coin? Notice that. And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Now, help me out here. How is that a good answer? Jesus, do we pay taxes, yes or no? Show me the coin. Whose image is on there? What writing is on there? Okay, you told me, great, now give it to Caesar. Huh? Look at, verse, look at the next verse, 22. When they heard this, they were amazed, so they left him and went away. This is Proverbs 26, 4 and 5, isn't it? How is this a good answer? What we need to understand here is the the greatness of this answer is driven by the context, and it's driven by Jesus' lifestyle, the way that Jesus navigates his way through this culture war. To understand this, go back to the beginning of the story. Verse 15, we read that there are two groups of people. The first are the Pharisees, and the Pharisees, we read, lay some plans to trap him, and they sent their disciples. The Pharisees were well known to Jesus, so they get some people who Jesus wouldn't know in order to go to him. Now, the, the second group here are the Herodians. The disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians both go to Jesus. These were two polar opposite groups. The disciples of the Pharisees were nationalists, okay? They basically hated Rome, and they hated Herod. They believed that what God was going to do in bringing the Messiah was to get rid of Rome and to get rid of Herod and free God's people from the oppression of Rome. The other side are the Herodians. The Herodians are mentioned three times in the New Testament, twice in Mark, once in Matthew. The second time in Mark, they are mentioned as the leaven of the, Her of the, of the Herods or of the Herodians. Some of our translations have the leaven of the Sadducees. The Sadducees and the Herodians kind of work together. The Sadducees controlled the high priesthood. The high priesthood controlled the temple. The temple controlled all of the money in the economy, a lot of money in politics, a lot of money in religion. And if you could put religion and politics together, you were going to make a killing. And so the Herodians were part of the Herodian dynasty. They were supporters of it. Went from 80, uh, 40 BC through to 100 AD. They supported Herod. They supported Rome. They kind of sided with the Sadducees to control the temple. And there was a lot of money in there. And they were loyal to Rome and they were loyal to Jerusalem. So you get two sides. Polar opposites. They didn't like one another. But you know who they hated worse than each other? Jesus. Because Jesus' kingdom wasn't for Rome or for Jerusalem. Jesus' kingdom was based on another world. It was out of this world. He was more of a challenge to them than they were to each other. And so they gang up on Jesus and they say, here's what we're going to do. We're going to trap this guy and we're going to make him say, give taxes to Rome 
Because that would really alienate his side because his side are full of people who have been laboring under the burden of taxation for so long. In fact, Judas the Galilean, a few decades earlier, had seen his revolt against the taxes crushed mercilessly. So the popular people, they had no recourse, nowhere to turn. So if he says give taxes to Rome, we'll alienate his base. But more than that, the Herodians say, if he ultimately says, don't give taxes to Rome, we will go to Herod and to the Romans, and we will get this guy put down. We've got him either way. He'll either destroy his base, or he will ultimately go against the Romans. Either way, we win. But what does Jesus do? He says, give me a coin. Look at the coin. Give it to Caesar. He just said, pay taxes. He's alienated his base, hasn't he? No. To understand the wonder of Jesus' actions, we need to recognize that the wonder of his answer has nothing to do with the coin in their hands, nor the words from his mouth, but actually in a lifestyle that championed a different kind of kingdom, a kind of kingdom that made peace with God the basis for peace with Rome and peace with Jerusalem. That's the wonder of his answer. To understand this, you need to appreciate that in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there is a remarkable similarity going on in the story. And this similarity begins from the moment that Jesus triumphantly enters Jerusalem. You know the story. Jesus enters Jerusalem. They're all singing, hey, this guy is awesome. He goes into the temple, and do you remember what he did? He cleaned out the money changers. Money changes. Why were the money changes in the temple? Now, notice that in the question, Jesus is asked about taxes, and he actually brings God into the equation. This is what makes it brilliant. Who brought God into a discussion of politics, right? In our nation, God and religion separate them. Jesus doesn't think that that's the way it works. Jesus brings God into a question of politics. We don't do that, but Jesus was okay with it. He can do that because he does something in the temple that deals with the money changes. What does he do? He drives them out. What were the money changes there for? Well, the money changes had two particular functions. The first function is this. People from outside of Jerusalem, the Galilee, and different parts of the country would come in for the feasts, and they would go to the temple to make a sacrifice of an animal, which wouldn't basically pay for their sin, but it would cover their sin. And rather than bring in an animal from Galilee that had the had the risk of getting, you know, um, lame or, or not, wouldn't be presented spotless anymore, what people would do is they would go into the temple, they would bring their coins with the image on it, and they would give the coin to the money changer, and the first thing that they would be able to do is to buy an animal that would be sacrificed in the temple. What is the point of the sacrifice? To cover their sin. Not to clean, cleanse them from sin, but to cover it. The second thing they would do is the money changers would also be there so that the non-Jerusalemites would be able to give their Roman coin and get this. They would be able to receive a Jerusalem coin in return. Jerusalem coins were locally minted coins that had no 
image or inscription on there. Those coins would be offered into the temple in the way that many of you would make an offering, and it would be used to purchase things in Jerusalem. The Romans allowed for the Jerusalemites to basically mint their own local coins with no image. Jesus, is it okay for us to give taxes to Rome? Show me the coin. How have people got the different coin, the Jerusalem coin, when Jesus has actually kicked the money changers out of the temple? They've only got one coin. There, is, there isn't another coin. And Jesus says, whose image is on this? Whose inscription is on it? Herod's. Give it to Herod. And oh, by the way, give to God what's God's. And you can almost hear the people say, can't you? Uh, Jesus, how, how do we do that exactly? How, how can we actually give God anything when we can't even make a sacrifice to cover our sin anymore because you've just kicked everybody out of the temple? We remain in our sin, Jesus. And Jesus looks at them and said, yeah, that you remain in your sin is pretty clear from the way that you're treating one another. But Jesus, what do we give him? We can't even give an offering into the temple because remember, you kicked all the money changers out of there. Jesus, can you tell me what kind of offering is acceptable to give to God? And That's really where this story turns. Because if you watch closely between the incident of Jesus cleaning out the money changers from the temple and this question, in all three of the Gospels, you see the same story. The story where Jesus is asked, by what authority do you do these things? What are, who gives you the right to change the rituals in the temple? Who gives you the right to change what makes people right with God? And the second portion of the stories that we see in, in the Gospels here addresses a parable where the, the, the owner of the vineyard's son is murdered. The Gospels leave us in no doubt about what deals with the animosity that exists between the Jerusalemites, the Galileans, between the Romans and the Jews, between the Jews and the Gentiles. It's not an offering of an animal in the temple. It is not even putting your money in the offering plate when it passes you by. What deals with the animosity between people, Jesus says, is that a new type of sacrifice is made, one that doesn't just cover sin or ignore it, but one that actually deals with it once and for all. Many of us have been taught for so many years that they put Jesus to death because they didn't understand what he was saying. The truth couldn't be more different. These religious leaders put Jesus to death because they understood only too well what he was saying. The real way for peace in this nation is for you to experience peace with God and when you experience peace with God, you will start to find peace with yourself. And when you have peace with yourself, then you can have reconciliation with other people. 
but these temple, this temple with all its rituals, it will never do anything but cover the problem. What we need to do is to go to the heart of the issue. And the reason they put him to death is because they knew that Jesus was getting rid of the ability of the rituals in the temple to get to the heart of the human condition that separates one from another. They put Jesus to death because they knew that he was saying that it is through him and him alone that people find peace with God, and it is through him and him alone that this peace with God flows out to enable us to experience peace with ourselves, freedom from guilt and shame. And once we experience that, God does his work of putting us right with other people. Friends, that's the way it works. When we find peace with God, we begin to find peace with ourselves. And when we discover peace with ourselves, then God begins that project of putting the world to right through us. Not sure? Cast your eyes to the screen and just see the story of how two polar opposite people whose lives had crossed in an unmistakable way found reconciliation through finding peace with God. Cast your eyes to the screen. Well, my career actually started in 1975. I had the childhood dream of being a police officer. And in 1975, I was sworn in. And my first 20 years was with the patrol division. And in 1996, the chief that hired me retired. And I felt that I should apply for the job. So. I was appointed the police chief in May of 1996. Uh, from the mid-1990s to basically the early 2000s, uh, there was significant criminal gang activity in Holland. There was a lot of drive-by shootings, gang fights in the streets, and in 1999, actually, two homes were burned to the ground. And so tremendous stress and pressure was put on me to try to resolve this problem. Well, growing up, you know, you always watch the movies and whatnot, you know, you want to be like that, you know, do your own thing. And, um, you know, I just wanted to fit in and, and be that, that tough guy, if you will, you know. I wanted to, uh, I don't know, something about it just really appealed to me, you know. Even growing up, um, law enforcement, uh, you despise them, you know. You don't trust them, you hate them, you, um, to the core, I mean, you see a cop and you instantly get paranoid and you're filled with hatred. Uh, the stress that went along with it led to resentment of certain individuals that I knew and certain gang groups that I was aware of. The most traumatic event that I had to go through as the police chief um, was in the last year of my career. One of my officers murdered his wife. And as a result of those two things, because I'm a human person with emotions, um, anger built, resentment built, bitterness towards individuals built, hatred is like a cancerous tumor inside of you. It can start small, but it grows. And it's there, and if you don't deal with it, I believe it can destroy you. I was lost. Um, I had a lot of darkness, a lot of anger, a lot of rage. Um, I don't know, I just never found my place, you know. Um, I got paroled and I was scared. Um, 
just kept on thinking. I wanted to tell my dad to turn the car around, let's go back to prison. You know, I'm not ready to be out here. I'm not ready to, I mean, how do you make choices? How do you live life right when all you know is bad, you know? And, um, but yeah, and it's, you know, I, I fought that that whole day. Then one of my old mentors came from Muskegon and took me to Moran Park, you know, but um, looking at my surroundings, I mean, I felt uncomfortable. You know, I felt like I was going to be judged, you know, a Mexican full of tattoos and a swagger when I walk, you know, I just felt like I was going to be judged. So I put my head down. I was like, you know, God, if this is really you, you know, send somebody back here to come get me because I'm too scared. And um, a guy I never met before came up to me and um, he's like, you know, when I came back from the bathroom, your face stuck in my head and I felt like I needed to talk to you. Is there anything you want to talk about? And um, I broke down in tears and I told him, you know, I'm ready to come home. And he asked me what that meant. And I told him, you know, I'm ready to give my life to Jesus Christ. They surrounded me, you know, they prayed over me for about half an hour. You know, and I never felt such peace, such, um, it's like just the anger inside of me just melted. And um, I was floating on clouds, you know, and um, And that, that day, uh, two weeks after getting out of prison, I started my journey with Christ. I heard that Central was gonna have a celebrate recovery ministry, and I'm familiar with it due to a person that's close to me went through it and had his, had his life literally transformed through the ministry. So I felt that I wanted to get involved in, in the CR program here, and celebrate recovery and the material that they have put together, if you seriously study that and apply it to your life allows you to help release and identify and then release some of the issues you're dealing with and some of those issues are anger resentment bitterness and i've been allowed to identify different areas of my life that i've found i had some of those areas and the gang issue was one of them I remember one time at CR, we were talking about celebrate recovery, we were talking about making amends. And it kind of hit me. How do you make amends with people that you've hurt and you don't even know? You know, and then one day at Gateway, I'm sitting there thinking and just dawned upon me, you know, the police department, you know, and I remember sitting in the backseat of uh, celebrate recovery and just staring at John and wrestling with myself, you know, to approach him, you know, I was scared. Um, a lot of my old thinking, you know, I really had to, um, I really had to pray and just let go and just ask God to guide me. And I got up and I approached him and I told him what I was on my heart. And the poor guy got emotional and asked me what year, what gang, I told him, and he said, you know, I forgive you. You know, he said, oh, that means a lot to me. I was taken I was taken by shock, really. I was amazed that he, first of all, would approach me. And uh, he was so open and honest about what he had done, told me about his background. I was familiar with the gang he was involved with, very familiar with them. And as he talked, I couldn't help but have my heart just start melting. 
because I saw that he was very sincere about what he was saying. And uh, then he specifically asked me that I forgive him. And my heart just melted and I said, absolutely I will. It's happened in both of our lives. I have gotten to know him very well. We spend quite a bit of time together since then. And uh, we're able to talk and share about our pasts. And uh, this young man, Ishmael, is coming to Central now. It's interesting, he said to me, I'd like to come to Central because I want to be part of the big CR family. And um, I'm very grateful to many of the people who have met him and embraced him. And uh, it's been a, just a very positive experience for both of us, for me to see that and for him to experience that. But the bottom line of the whole thing is this. You can take one guy here and one guy here who lived total opposite lives. And their hearts have been changed through coming to Christ. God moving in our hearts, changing them in a way that we can come together as friends and encouragers and, and believers in Christ together. Before Jesus that day stood two polar opposite groups, had nothing in common. They detested one another, but their problem was they detested Jesus more than they detested one another. But I tell you this, when two very different people, polar opposites, come face to face with one another, but they actually have made a commitment to love Jesus, to pursue peace with God, it changes them and it changes the way that their relationship works one with the other. We got to experience that. And where else but in the kingdom of God do you see polar opposites? People whose paths have crossed not in a positive way, but in a negative way, find reconciliation like that. See, the way to change is not to change another person, but to recognize we've all got our stuff, all of us. And it's really easy to look opposite one another, across to someone and think you've got your stuff. But the right thing to do is to acknowledge, I've got my stuff too. God, deal with me. And when we find peace with God, we begin to have peace with ourselves, and then we begin to experience peace with other people. That's the way it works. John and Ishmael are both here today. I'd like to invite you guys up on the stage to, to join me. Uh, can you welcome them to the stage? One of the things, Ishmael, that struck me when I was listening to that story is that when you're at CR, knowing that God had already spoken to you and said, hey, I want you to make amends. You're sitting there at CR listening to this teaching on making amends, and you ask yourself that question. God, how do I make amends to people that I've heard and I don't even know? And then 
It would, if you weren't there at Celebrate Recovery that night, it was an awesome night. Let me just tell you this, where reconciliation happens like this, with polar opposites. But three times God has told you that. And uh, part of our motivation in sharing this story today is we do believe that what has happened in both of your lives, where you've both dealt with your pasts, that prevented the reconciliation. Part of a motive for doing this is to recognize too that God was asking you to do something. There was another step of making amends that you felt God wanted you to do. And uh, this is your mic. I just wanted to uh, extend an apology to you, all brothers and sisters, for the immature behavior, the destruction, the pain I've caused the community in the past. Um, I ask for your forgiveness and I really appreciate it. And watching this video, just wanted to tell you, John, thank you. I love you, brother. Thanks for always being there. We believe that the future for different people coming together with different viewpoints involves three steps. Firstly, finding peace with God. To find peace with God, it involves humility. It involves recognizing that we can't change ourselves. We need God's help to change us. Then we begin to find peace with ourselves, and and that involves honesty. Then, as a result of that, it moves on to finding peace with other people and and that involves what you call vulnerability. These two people have been vulnerable with us today and I think the result is you see what God can do. And our real prayer for this series, our real prayer for this nation is that we would realize that when Jesus said he has come to bring a kingdom that is not of this world, The kingdom looks like this. This is what it looks like. And unfortunately, this kingdom of heaven is not always found in the church in the way it should be. And more often than not, we are guilty of being gas on the fire rather than the salt and light of Jesus in the world. And we really believe that when we are confronted with people who are totally different from us, rather than point the finger We need to ask ourselves, God, what do you want to do in our own hearts? And when we practice that, it may take 18 years. This is what we get. And we don't get that by pointing the finger. Someone told me once, Craig, whenever you point the finger at someone, you've got three fingers pointing back at you. Let's be slow to judge and let's be quick to practice peace. Let's thank John and Ishmael for sharing their story. Hey man, what what an incredible picture to, to actually have names and faces and stories to put with this truth. 
that Jesus said, I came to bridge this gap, not only between a perfect God and his imperfect people, but between those broken people groups themselves. Many times when I grew up, I heard, hey, Jesus came and went on the cross and died for your sins so that you could be made right with God. But I keep forgetting that there's a whole second part of that story. And he also came to make you right with the people around you. But like Craig said, we can't be made right with the people around us until we've been made right with God. Until God allows us to become right with ourselves. And that only happens, as you've seen, when people have the courage and the candor to look in the mirror and say, I am stuck. Like John said, I'm struggling with anger. Like Ismail said, I'm struggling with fear. And until we put all of that baggage and all of that hurt, all of that weight into the hands of our loving Father, we cannot be fully restored to who he created us to be and who he called us to be. And Ephesians chapter 2 said that Jesus didn't just come to buy us tickets into paradise. Jesus came to do what? He came to restore the broken relationships that we have with one another. He says this, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. When you read this verse, I want you to think about one new humanity, and that one new humanity is John and Ismail together who had lived for decades with hostility, animosity, rage between them as the groups that they represented. Guys who were living hard to scrap together an existence on the streets and those who is their responsibility to enforce both law and order. It's just been at odds for whatever. And it's only through the cross of Jesus Christ, not through some great developmental program, not that time heals all wounds, not a growth of personal maturity, only through the cross of Jesus Christ that those two gentlemen call each other friends and brothers. And it's our hope that we could transcend some of the conflicts, some of the petty differences, some of the hostility that's emerged over very significant issues and say, Lord, will you give us a different vision? Will you give us the ability to rise above? Why? Because a world that is lost in darkness is yearning for light. A world that's trapped in a fog of confusion. They, they can kind of sense that there's something behind the filter, but because they've got a broken relationship with God and a broken relationship with themselves and broken relationships with each other, they can't see, they can't see what's behind the layers. But when these layers come off and we're restored to God and we're restored to one another, we can finally be restored with ourselves. The world can see with clarity the heart of Jesus Christ. And it's my prayer that we, the people of Central, would not be known for our brilliant capacity to win debates. That we would be celebrated in this community for our consistent desire to proclaim the heart of Jesus, to amplify the hope and life of Jesus in every conversation, in every interaction, in every environment, and in every place our foot hits the ground. So the team is going to lead us in a time of song and celebration, a reminder that it is only through the cross and only in the person of Jesus that we are both reconciled to God and have the opportunity to be reconciled to one another. So let's come to God and worship with all of the joy that captures what we've just witnessed. <laughs>